And so will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 John chapter 2? If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 28, and then we're going to go into chapter number 3. So would you stand as we read God's Word as we get our aerobics in this morning, get the blood flowing for a five-hour sermon? Here we go. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. The Holy Spirit says through the Apostle John. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You may be seated. You know, in this Christmas season, highs can be high and lows can be low. Christmas has uh, the ability to magnify things. If things are going great in your life, then it's a holly jolly Christmas. But if things are going bad in your life, if you feel a little lonely, Christmas can be very, very, very blue. It can be very sad. And the question today for us is this, is there any hope? You know, as I've said in this series, we're living in a mental health crisis. In America, 34,000 people commit suicide each year. It's 94 people a day. One in every 15 minutes. And what we know is that for every one successful attempt, there are more than 100 attempts. Since COVID, we have just seen the, just the, the sadness and the hopelessness of the younger generation. There was a study that was recently done that found that 51% of 18 to 24-year-olds say that in the past two weeks, they have either felt down, depressed, or hopeless. 59% of young people aged 13 to 21 say that they have trouble sleeping at night. That may be you. And you look around at this world and you look at what's going on in the news, you look at social media, you look at everyone's filtered life and you think that everything is hopeless. You know, we look to different answers. We think, well, maybe if we just get the right person in the White House, or maybe if we can just get the economy to do this, or, or maybe we can just look at education, and if we could just educate ourselves or medicate ourselves, that things will get better. A, a guy that I've been talking to for over two years, a friend of mine, highly intellectual, academic, a guy who has served in multiple uh, places, uh, literally around the world in the highest levels of government, has served as a consultant to United States presidents and other people internationally. 
someone that's been on a lot of news channels. I had a conversation with him just a couple weeks ago. He's a secular Jew. And we had a long conversation about the current affairs of the world and what's going on in Israel, what's going on in Europe and what's happening in China and then what's going on in America with our own political woes. And, and I looked at him and I said, hey, uh, do you see this world heading towards a utopia where everything's perfect or a dystopia where, where things fall apart and there's great chaos? And this is when this conversation got serious. And he said, Alan, I think it's heading towards dystopia. So I paused for a moment, asked him this question. I said, well, then here's my question to you. Do you have any hope that things will get better? And he said, no. I said, so how does that make you feel? In these three words, he said, this is how it makes him feel. Sad, empty, and foreboding. See, ultimately, without any hope, life is sad, empty, and foreboding. And it is behind that dark background of our broken world that the message of Christmas and the gospel of Jesus Christ shines as a beacon of hope. Because Christmas tells us that the hopes and fears of all the years have been met in Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at the book of 1 John, and John is a 90-year-old apostle, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, not living his best life here, but he is concerned for the next generation. I'm concerned for the next generation. We as a church should be concerned about the next generation, and what John's concern was for them then should be our concern for them today, and that is he had a concern because he wanted them to know who Jesus really was and who he really is. He wanted them to have assurance of their salvation, and he wanted the next generation of believers to know the joy, peace, hope, love, and life that he has found in Jesus. As a 90-year-old man, he has gone through every danger, toil, and snail, uh, snare. <laughs> he has, uh, go, even snails too, and, and he has gone through a lot of terrible things, but he knows the secret to hope, and that secret to hope is found in Jesus. And so here today, we see that Jesus came to give us hope through the security of our status and the certainty of his coming. Those are two things today. We can have hope in a hopeless world because if you are a spirit-filled, born-again, good and saved Christian, you have hope. You have hope that money cannot buy. You have hope that death cannot take away. Number one, you have hope in the security of your status. I know who I am. I'm a child of God. Verse 28 of chapter two, John says, and now. This is a new theme. This is a transition a statement here. I'm picking up a new theme based on everything I've just told you. And now little children, this is the Greek word technia. I know that blessed your heart, but it's found four times in these verses that we read. John here is coming back to this term technia or little children to not just be a condescending way and not just say, well, you little kids, no, this is a term of endearment, but it's a term of endearment that reminded them of their status before gods. He doesn't say, and now you slaves, or now you employees, or now you enemies, or now you slugs and bugs, and now you children of God. 
See, do you understand that being a child of God is the greatest thing you could ever be called? Because being a child of God gives you confidence and assurance that you know who your father is. See, some of you, you grew up and maybe you didn't have a, a good dad. Maybe you had a bad dad or maybe you had no dad or maybe you just had a very, a very tough dad or maybe some of you had a good dad. But for you to understand what I'm talking about here, this is really just something that is at the heart of Christianity, that if you are a Christian, you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, God is your father. That's why he says in verse number one, see, behold, what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Do you understand that your identity is not what the world says you are? That nothing in this world defines you more than the fact that you are a child of God? See, a child of God is the honest, legal, spiritual, relational, eternal identity of the believer. And he says in verse number two, that we are God's children now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not in heaven, but now. And what you have to understand is that it's not what others say you are, it's not what you say you are, it's what, it's what he says you are, it's who he says you are that matters. That your identity is not based on your public performance, nor is it based on your personal defeat. Your identity is wrapped up in God who is your daddy, amen. And so the greatest honor you could ever have is to be called a child of God because that is the closest possible relationship you can have with God. Is God your judge? Yes. Is God your creator? Yes. Is God your king? Yes. Is God your Lord? Yes. But we get to call him dad. And the good thing about having God as your dad is you don't have to make an appointment with him because he's always there. See, children have access like no one else. I've got three children. As a matter of fact, we just started a GoFundMe. It's called Three Starving Children. <laughs> if you want to contribute. But if your child needs you, if you're a good parent, if your child needs you, it doesn't matter where they are or when it is or how old they are, you're going to be there. If your kid gets sick in the night and they wake you up, you'll wake your wife up, say, hey, fix it, and then you'll take care of them, right? <clears throat> If they call you on the phone, like how many of you have ever called somebody and like one ring in, you get, this is a voicemail. And you know, like I just got, I just got like clicked. I don't, you know, I, you know, I, I, I can't say what I normally say when people do that to me. And so, but when my kids call, I answer them. I don't care if I'm in the middle of a sentence with the world's greatest person, I'm answering my kid's phone call, right? Why? Because I love them. I love them. So what John here says is this, you can have hope because you have a secure relationship. And he says here, behold, what kind of, that, that phrase, what kind is, can be translated from what planet? Because it's literally, this kind of love is out of this world. Now we can kind of somewhat comprehend it because like if you're a good parent, if you're a good dad uh, or you're a good mom, you love your kids despite their behavior. And so if your kid happens to be involved in sports, you will go to their game and you'll cheer them on even if you think they stink, all right? Oh, Johnny, man, you, of all the people sitting on the bench, you were the best. 
Do you understand that we're God's children? He loves you despite our behavior. Now that doesn't mean you'll live how you want, but, but he loves you. And, and one guy said, he says, do you understand that God has a picture of you on his refrigerator? And the angels are like, well, what do you see in them? And God says, I see Jesus in them. I mean, they're a hot dysfunctional mess, but they're my kids. Have you ever heard your dad or mom sing? Like my, my dad's philosophy on singing is this. If you can't sing good, sing loud. So he sang really loud, okay? <clears throat> I mean, he sang like a criminal behind two bars looking for a key, okay? <laughs> You'll figure that one out in a moment. <laughs> I got dad jokes, okay? What was I talking about? Okay, anyway, so, but there's something about hearing your dad sing. You know, one of the things, I, I sing with my boys. I love singing with my boys. I think it's good, men, that you sing in church. Do you know what God sings over you? I read this week, Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17. Here's what the word of God says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Wow. But here's the reality. Not everyone's a child of God. There's no such thing as a universal fatherhood of God or the universal brotherhood or sisterhood of man. God's the creator of all, but he's not the daddy of all. I mean, even Jesus told the Pharisees, he says, your father is the devil. Because those who reject the son have no relationship with the father. See, calling God your father is not a human right. It's a spiritual privilege. So how do you become a child of God? I'm so glad you asked. Verse 29 tells us this. Be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's just look at has been born of him. For you to be a child of God, you have to be born of him. That word born of him is in the perfect tense, which means this, an action in the past with ongoing results. And so about 40 years ago, my mom, today's my mom and dad's 46, 46th wedding anniversary, yeah. December 17th, 1977. Love you, mom and dad. They watch every week. They watch every week. They go to church, but then they watch every week. I ask them who is better. They don't tell me. <laughs> mom will kind of every now and again say you, but it's okay. <clears throat> I get that. Sometimes she doesn't, so I'll begin to wonder. I have issues, okay? But on February the 7th, 1984, there you are, okay? You can Google it. Uh, ancient history um, for some. Um, I was born. That was an action done in the past with ongoing results. <laughs> well, here he says, if you practice righteousness, you can know you're born of him. And so there was a point in your life where you were born again. Now, you may not necessarily remember when you were born again, because some people don't remember when they were born. They just know they're born. Now, sometimes, have you ever heard somebody say, I'm a, I'm a born again Christian? All Christians are born again. There's not another kind. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, you've been born again. Now you're saying, well, how do I know? <clears throat> how do I know I've been born again? Because I've had some people say, well, pastor, you know, I've asked Jesus into my heart every Sunday. I've been baptized like four times. I mean, some people say, I've been baptized so many times, I'm still wrinkly, okay? <laughs> I come to church every Sunday, I've, I've give, I give money to the church. 
But just because you do all the things doesn't mean you're born again. And listen, I'm not trying to be ugly. There's nothing wrong with saying this phrase, but the Bible never says anything about asking Jesus into your heart. Because it's not asking Jesus into your heart that saves you. It's trusting in and surrendering your heart to Jesus that saves you and asking him to give you a new heart. See, Jesus Christ, the reason why we celebrate Christmas is that Jesus Christ, the son of God, became the son of man so that you and I could become the sons and daughters of God. Hark the herald, one of my favorite. You know, I'd like to meet Harold one day. Have you ever wanted to meet Harold? Man, Harold, hark. Okay, anyway, one of the lines says this. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. One guy said this, because Jesus was born, we can be born again. So again, how do I know? Well, if I've surrendered my life to Jesus, he's given me a new heart. He's given me a new life. I've been born again. And if God has changed your heart, John says in this epistle, that means it will change your life. Don't get this idea that I have to change my life for God to change my heart. It doesn't work. God changes your heart, so it changes your life. It is new birth that precedes new behavior. So he says in verse 29, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It is impossible to live the righteous life for Jesus unless you've been born again. And so one of the ways that you know you've been born again, one of the ways you know you're a child of God is that you have an inward desire to be like your father. Children of God grow to look like their dad. There should be a family resemblance. Any of you ever watched those co progressive commercials? You don't know them out? Here's what the line is. Progressive can't protect you from becoming like your parents, but we can protect your home and auto when you bundle with us. What does it mean is this? You know, the older you get, the more you look like your parents, the more you talk like your parents, the more you think like your parents. I mean, think about this. You know you're getting old when underwear and socks are exciting Christmas gifts. <laughs> you wanna know what your future is? Look at your mom and dad, okay? It's in our DNA. You can't beat genetics, okay? <laughs> you can't do it. Rogaine don't fix it, all right? I'll tell you straight up. I've tried. All right, here we go. If you are born of God, you will be like him. And so theologians call this big word progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification means that over time, not overnight, you grow up to become more like Jesus. Some of y'all are brand new Christians. I, I love, I, you know, some of you have been saved in the past couple of years. We've seen so many people give their life to Christ and we're so excited about that. And some of you all, it's like the Cook Brothers here, like, like call your camera, everybody's shocked, okay? And some of you now that you're a Christian, you do things and you say things and you think things you never thought of before. Like people at your work are all angry and gossiping and running their mouths, which you know, people do that. And, but you don't participate. In the, in the past, you were the ringleader. Y'all know what I'm saying? Now you don't. Some of y'all, you come to church, and before you were Christian, you just kind of tolerate the music and tolerate the sermon, and now some of y'all are saying amen, <laughs> okay? You're not sleeping like you used to. Now, if your neighbor is asleep, poke them, you know, wake them up. Tell them it's time to pray. Stand up. All right. <laughs> Let's see who jumps up. All right. And some of y'all, like, now you come to church and you sing. Like before, you thought, well, this is just Christian karaoke. I'm going to endure the music. 
But now, not only do you sing, like you might even raise your hands a little bit. Now listen, I'm a Reformed Baptocostal. So Reformed people, here's how they worship. Baptists, this is how they worship. Yes, Jesus, yes, praise God. Pentecost, hey, amen, glory to God. Some of y'all finally got the spirit and you raise the hands in here, right? Because the spirit gets a hold of it. Now I'm gonna get some nasty grams on that. And, and I, we're hiring a new executive pastor and his email is. <laughs> so, but listen, God changes you. You wanna change. So listen, you know, some of y'all used to party, on Saturday nights you used to party and, and you don't party like you used to, but you still have as much fun because now you have fun and you are sober. It's change. Now, I don't find my security in my behavior. But my behavior reinforces my status that I'm a child of God. I want to be like him. So John says, listen, people, be beloved, we're God's children now. You don't have to worry about your status. You don't have to, am I in, am I out? No, you're in now. You're in now. This is not something you earn. This is something that's been given to you because of Jesus. And so one, one pastor said this. He, he says, beloved is not, Joby Martin says, beloved is not just an identity. Beloved is a command. Be loved. Don't try to earn it. Be loved. Love. Some of y'all need to be loved. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to be paranoid. Stop trying to be trying to prove to everyone that you are worthy. Be loved. Something that's been out, it's kind of out in popular psychology right now, and I think it's a legitimate thing. It's something called the imposter syndrome. You ever heard of the imposter syndrome? And basically, the imposter syndrome is this. It's the persistent inability to believe that one's success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved as a result of one's own effort. And so, in other words, the imposter syndrome is you feel like you're a fraud. Now, we don't have time to psychoanalyze all of that, but here's what I do believe. There's a Christian version of the imposter syndrome. And the Christian version of the imposter syndrome is this. It is the persistent inability to believe that you are a beloved forever child of God based on the success of Jesus on your behalf. Some of you think, well, pastor, I'm just a fraud. Listen, if you are a born again, spirit filled, good and saved Christian, you are a child of God and you are not a fraud. You're just forgiven. Be loved. Be loved. I can have hope because of my status. I'm a child of God. Number two, hope in the certainty of his coming. Not only hope in the security of my status, but hope in the certainty of his second coming. This world is not all there is. There's a better one coming. That, that's really the tenor behind where John is going with this because he constantly talks about it. In chapter two, verse 28, he says, when Jesus appears, when he appears. Chapter three, verse two, when he appears. This word appear finds itself all throughout here. The word parasua, when he appears. When he appears, we'll have confidence in his coming. When he appears, we will be like him. There is a certainty that he's gonna appear. And when he appears, if I'm his child, then there's some other things that are certain. This word here appears, we get our word around Christmas called Advent. Have you ever heard of Advent? Not Advil, Advent. Both will relieve you of a headache, okay? 
Advent just literally means appearing or arrival. So here, when he talks about chapter 228, chapter three, verse two, the advent or the appearing, that is the future appearing of Christ. But then chapter three, verse eight, the reason why we read it is he talks about the first advent. In verse number three, verse eight, he says that the reason that the son of God appeared, that's advent, the reason that Jesus showed up the first time was to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. So Christmas is a celebration of the appearing of the son of God to the earth he created. And Jesus Christ entered into this world on a search and destroy mission to destroy the works of the destroyer and to deliver his people forever from his power. So what John is saying is this, is that Jesus showed up the first time. And because he showed up the first time, he's going to show up the second time. The first time Jesus came, he came as a baby in a manger to destroy the works of Satan, but he did it through weakness, died on a cross. The second time Jesus comes, he will forever not just destroy the works of Satan, but he will destroy Satan. And when he destroys Satan, he will destroy him not in weakness, he did that the first time, but he's gonna destroy him in strength and power. He's gonna ride on a white horse, and we're gonna be with him, He's got tattoos on his legs, king of kings, lord of lords, and he's gonna kick rear and take names, amen. Amen? I almost said something I shouldn't, but I didn't, because I'm a child of God. <laughs> and so what John is getting at is this in verses 28 and 29. If Jesus showed up today, would you run from him or would you be excited for him? Like, have you ever been like watching a bad movie and say, Jesus, we want you to come back, but just not right now? <laughs> John says you need to live in such a way that if he shows up, you're not ashamed. Will you be excited? Will you run in fear? And John says, listen, you should be excited. This isn't some moment where you just do golf claps. Oh, Jesus, show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you should be excited because he says we are God's children now. And yet what we will be, we don't know. We don't know exactly what we're going to be. Hasn't yet appeared. All I know is that whatever I'm going to be is going to be a whole lot better than I am right now. I mean, you think I'm good looking now? Wait till I get to heaven. All right? Just tell you straight up. <laughs> Why are you laughing, okay? What John is saying is listen, we live in the already, not yet. Do you understand that we are already God's children now? So we need to be living like it now so that when He shows up, we're not freaking out? What John is getting at is that there is a day that's coming where every wrong is gonna be made right, everything sad is gonna be untrue, where we will be free from sin and suffering forever, and where the outside will finally match the inside that's the beauty of Christ. And one glorious day, we will see Jesus face to face just as he is. And so John says, just as certain as your status is, so is his second coming. And the good thing is your reservation is ready. And so because of this, you should live a different life. Verse three, everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself. Now I want to live an uncontaminated, unmixed life. I want to be less of the junk of the world and more the joy of Jesus. I want to live different. I want, in preparation, I want to be ready so that when he shows up, I'm ready to go. Like, are y'all ready to go? Now, we're in a season of vacation. So people take Christmas vacation. One of the greatest movies, isn't it, Christmas? I'm not endorsing it, okay? I do enjoy it, but I'm not endorsing it, all right? But, you know, it's really nice. Okay, it's a great movie. 
But in the summer, people, people take summer vacations. I, you know, listen, maybe this isn't you because we do live in Naples, which is like a perpetual vacation, okay? But I don't, do you, any of you, and you can say amen, did any of you ever get excited thinking about your vacation? Yeah, nobody, just one person, thank you, all right? <laughs> You're too loud, okay? <laughs> we look forward to vacations because we can get away. We wanna get away from the mundane. We wanna get away from the ordinary. We wanna just experience the joy of that. And so, now I don't know, like, again, we're in Naples and so it's, everything's different and relative, but back when I, when I lived up in the great white north in Kentucky, you know, people would prepare to come down here, okay? <laughs> now people here go to go up there. So, and so what, and this is, there's an article done by The Atlantic just a couple weeks ago that says that people prepare, pre- people prepare twice as hard, or people work twice as hard to prepare for vacation. So maybe like some of you got like a big vacation coming up. And so maybe you'll do this, maybe you won't. You'll go buy a bunch of clothes because you, you want to look good. Like the, the photos, the Instagram photos have to look good, right? <laughs> you know, you got to get your Lululemon stuff, you know, and your Patagonia, is that what that stuff is? Like I'm so poor, I, I could just get like, I can't, I get like Pat, okay? I can't even get the Patagonia. You got, you got your nice stuff. People get their hair done, get their nails done. I mean, I don't really fool with that. They lose some weight because, listen, you know, I'm going to go on vacation. I want to look good, right? I have my beach body. Save money. I want to make sure that I can spend. Some people go to the tanning bed. Up north, they go to the tanning bed. You know what the tanning bed is here? Outside, okay? You just go outside. You, you get tan. People get healthy. People will work really hard so that when they go on vacation, they can enjoy it. They won't be ashamed. They'll look good. They'll feel good, et cetera. Well, I was thinking, well, that's kind of how, to some degree, we should live our lives here is that the hope and anticipation we should have for Jesus to return should cause us to want to be ready for it so that when it shows up, we're ready. Causes us to live different. Here's what I know. When people don't have hope, they'll do all kinds of evil things. Like right now, if if Jesus really wasn't real and this isn't, this isn't, you know, like legit and there is no heaven and there is no hell and the world is going to hell even though hell doesn't exist. You know, our only prospects for president are the ones we got, which is just scary. <clears throat> like if you had no hope, you just do whatever you want. Like I sit there and thought about the other, if I wasn't a Christian, if I wasn't a child of God, I would be, I would be evil, just flat out evil. You say, well, you already are. Well, I am, but I'm forgiven, all right? So the only way I can describe this is this, there's a guy named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was the Jewish Austrian doctor. He was a prisoner in Nazi Germany during World War II, and he was put in Poland in the concentration camp. He's from Austria, but he was put in a concentration camp in Auschwitz-Birkenau. I've been there, it's terrible. And maybe you've been a part of reading or seeing and being a part of what it was, uh, you know, seeing the, the, the horrible situation that Auschwitz and the Holocaust was. And so he survived it. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in this book, he tells stories of his time being in Auschwitz and then how the different prisoners in the concentration camp dealt with their uh, hopeless situation. He said, some people... We just become evil and cruel and do some of the wickedest, vilest things to other prisoners. But he said, most just responded to their hopeless situation by just giving up. He wrote, 
Usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar to us who had been at Auschwitz for a while. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just laid there. They'd given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope and then they would just die. Frankel says that the ones who overcame Auschwitz, who truly overcame it, were those who had a fixed reference point outside of the world. That they held on to something that was beyond the grasp of death and destruction. Well, if you are a Christian, you have that. You have a reference point outside of this world. You have a hope. Now, hope has been hijacked by bad thinking. When we think of hope, we think of something that may happen, but we doubt will happen. Like I hope Kentucky wins a national championship in basketball, who knows? And the reason why I hope, and people have lost hope and hope, is because we have fallen into the same mistake over and over and over again. The reason why we don't have hope and hope is because we have put our hope in people, places, or things that ultimately and inevitably disappoint us. And as a result, people are very skeptical of hope. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it is in the context of sure deliverance and reality. And so John says, listen, this isn't a hope so thing. Jesus is gonna return. This world's gonna get better. Things are gonna be different. You are going to be with God forever. This world is not all there is. And so you have to live differently. And that's why he says in verse one, the reason why the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. The world did not understand Jesus. They didn't relate to Jesus and they didn't like Jesus. And if they didn't understand him or like him, they're not gonna understand and like you. People are gonna think you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs because you have a hope that's not in this world. You're, you're, listen, there's nothing in this world that really gives me hope for the future. Now maybe as Christians we can stay off the decay, but ultimately we know where this thing's headed. And the reason why the world doesn't like us and the reason why the world doesn't, doesn't understand us is because we have a hope that's out of this world. Our hope is not anything in this world. Our hope is the one who is above this world, who is one day returning to this world to rescue us. And so how do we live? We live in verse 228 by abiding in him. By abiding in him, by thinking of him, by dwelling on him, by, by, by getting close to him, by, by thinking of his love, thinking of all that he's done and, and living in the assurance of that is, is that as we abide in him, as we get into his word and we're gonna do as we've done every year here, uh, reading through the Bible plan and we're gonna be sending that out to you. You're gonna get a text message, social media and some personalized cards so you can do the Bible in a year through with us. And is we wanna abide in Jesus. Like, you know, I love it when, my, when they were little, not so much as much now, but they would just wanna hang out with you. And they just wanna, like, if you're watching something, they wanna sit next to you, or when they were like really little, they would get in your lap. I mean, that was, where well, there was abiding. So I, you need, listen, if you wanna survive, you've gotta abide. If you wanna thrive, you gotta abide. If you want hope, you've gotta abide. Abide in him, stay close to him. And you can stay close to him knowing he won't cast you away. You gotta focus on him. 
because he's gonna return. And when he returns, everything you've ever hoped for will be true, will be true. The longing you have just to see this world different, the desire you have just to get away will all be realized when he returns. See, our world has lost hope in hope because without Jesus, there's nothing to hope in. And Jesus Christ came on Christmas Day to give us hope, to be our only hope in a hopeless world. In 1977, George Lucas put out a film, maybe you've heard of it, it's called A New Hope. Star Wars. The critics said it was gonna be a cosmic flop because it came out the same day as Smokey and the Bandit. 78 billion dollars later, it's done pretty good. But there's that iconic moment in the movie Princess Leia through R2-D2 and the most sophisticated technology of the day did this. Wow. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And what happens is old Ben Kenobi he couldn't really do anything. But the Jedi's, just a spoiler alert, close your ears. The Jedi's eventually get rid of Darth Vader, take over, evil empire. The Jedi force wins. Spoiler alert. It took a few decades to kind of get that story out, but it happened. There's even a better story than that. There's one who is your only hope, and his name is Jesus. And Christmas time may seem like a hopeless season, but I want you to hear the word of Jesus. And maybe you're just now tuning in with me, but hear the words of God in chapter three, verse eight, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. And one of the biggest works of the devil is to lie to you and to tell you that you are hopeless and you're a lost cause. But the good news of Christmas, the good news of Jesus is that no one is hopeless and no one is a lost cause. Jesus is your only hope. So my question to you is this, do you have this hope? Do you have a hope that money can't buy? Do you have a hope that death can't take away? Do you have hope that your status is secure as God is your father? Do you have hope that when he returns, you will not be ashamed, but you'll be excited? If you don't have that hope, what a day to have a hope. Don't be like my friend who I witnessed to for over two years. Don't be sad, empty, and foreboding, but give your life to Jesus.
Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would do what I couldn't do, that the devil is not gonna have any victory today, that God, that you have come and you've destroyed the works of the devil and that no one is hopeless, that you are our only hope. Holy Spirit, would you move people today? Would you call people to yourself? And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, maybe you wanna just trust him right now. Maybe you wanna surrender your heart to him. So maybe you would pray this prayer with me. If you've never given your life to Jesus and you wanna give it to him right now, we're not asking Jesus into our heart. We're surrendering our dead hearts so that he'll give us a new heart. Would you pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. Today, I believe that you are who you say you are that you died on the cross for me, that you rose from the dead for me. And today I surrender my heart to you. I surrender my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. Save me, Jesus, and help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, help those who trusted you today to make it known. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing all my hope is in Jesus.